A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode has been generously sponsored as a schus for the Refuah Shalema of the Mir Mashkiach or Baron David Ben Sivia Lea. He should have a Refuah Shalema. I want to mention also that uh, several, a couple of family Hanukkah parties have already booked uh, virtual tours, an exciting addition for your Hanukkah. And there are few uh, nights left, um, slots left. So if you want to enhance your Hanukkah party, so be in touch with me. We can have an exciting virtual tour to add to the uh, fun of Hanukkah. So virtual tours, so be in touch with me about sponsorships, lectures, and all of those kind of things. So tonight we'll be speaking a little bit about uh, Rabbi Mordechai Elephant. I actually want to thank uh, legendary um, uh, li- Jewish History Soundbites listener Ellie Neuberger with his vast knowledge and his input for this episode as well as for many other episodes as well. Before I get to Mordechai Elephant of the Itri Yeshiva, I want to, there's been a lot, last several months, there's been a lot of feedback of some time um, about our audio intro. It seems to be very popular. The nice uh, historical audio clips um, collection that uh, that int- that it opens up every episode of Jewish History Soundbites. There's been many requests to provide the historical background of the different uh, components of the audio. So what I've decided to do is uh, do a short review of two or three of them at the beginning of the next several episodes. So over the next four or five episodes, we'll be able to get... Uh, get a little bit of a, a background to the intro before we get into the topic at hand. So we'll start from the beginning this time. We'll do um, you know, just the first couple of, of uh, clips from the audio, and uh, we'll cover it over the next few episodes. The first one, it opens up with uh, David Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion, reading the Declaration of Independence, the founding of the State of Israel, and that uh, takes place on May 14th, 1948. Definitely, a whether you're Zionist or not, it's definitely a momentous occasion, a historical moment. Um, the the uh, it took place in the Tel Aviv Museum, which today it's Independence Hall in Tel Aviv, and is the, on May 14th, 1948, the day after the British mandate ended, 
and uh, they were preparing for it beforehand, the Minhelet Ha'am, which was something like, you know, a people's administration that convened to vote, should they declare independence or not, because maybe they'll just accept a, a truce, some sort of, you know, division, international, you know, oversight, whatever it was. There was 13 members of the Minhelet Ha'am, Three were not around. Two of them were in besieged Yerushalayim, Yudaleib Maimon and Yitzchak Greenbaum. The third one, Itzhemeyer Levine, the Gera representative, was in the United States. So the ten remaining ones in Tel Aviv voted on a six to four vote to declare the state of Israel. And that's why the state was declared. You know, three or four lawyers in the JNF building, uh, the Jewish National Fund building in Tel Aviv, uh, wrote up the text. And, um, and, uh, in fact, they, there was a question of whether to mention God's name in the Declaration of Independence. And that became an, a contentious issue. And, uh, and the compromise that Ben Gurion suggested was to mention Tsur Yisrael, the Rock of Israel. And, and he asked, please don't put God up for a vote. And everyone can interpret what the Rock of Israel means for, for them. Then they had to decide on what this country is going to be named. Is it going to be called, Judea, Zion, Aver from you know from the uh, uh, from the Aver Hanar from the you know Ivri, Eretz Yisrael, Tziona, Herzliya, all these different uh, different names, and eventually in a again a six to three vote, they decided on Israel. So all these little votes that had big ramifications. But the funniest part of the Declaration of Independence is that the final draft was supposed to be brought from the Jewish National Fund build, building to the Tel Aviv Museum building by a fellow named Zev Sheriff who forgot to arrange transportation. So he goes outside and he flags down a car and asks the driver who is driving a borrowed car without a license to take him to the ceremony. And the guy who didn't, wasn't interested in driving him. So finally he persuaded him to, to take him. The car was stopped by a cop because he was speeding. And uh, and eventually he gets there. It was the ceremony was supposed to start at four o'clock, and he comes re- tearing into the hall with the text of the Declaration of Independence, and uh, Ben Gurion read it. So that's the first clip. The second clip that we have is um, President uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, announcing the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which took place on December seventh, and he had spoke about it the next day on December eighth. Um, which you know brought the United States into uh, World War II. He asks Congress to declare war on the Imperial uh, Japanese uh, Empire, which was the last time the United States declared that, and two, a few days later against Germany, Nazi Germany, was the last time the United States ever declared war. All the other wars of the 20th century were, were fought without an official declaration of war from uh, the United States Congress, which um, which is what the Constitution mandates for war. And uh, and here Roosevelt made the you know, immortal uh, words of the United States entering the war of this day will live in infamy. Um, the l- third one is the on Yud Shvat on 1951. In 1950 on Yud the Hebrew date of Yud Shvat, the Friedeke Rebbe, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, passed away. For an entire year, it wasn't clear who would become the next uh, leader. We spoke about that in one of our episodes about the Rebbe's rise to leadership. And exactly a year later, on the yard site of the previous Rebbe, the Rayats, so Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the next Rebbe, the son-in-law of the previous Rebbe, 
he gets up and he delivers a, his first mimer, which is known as the Basi Legani uh, mimer, his first talk as a Rebbe, which if you want to know the content, you got to ask someone who actually knows what he's talking about. But it was a very historical mimer, the Basi Legani, that he said on the yard site of his father-in-law, because that's what made him become the Rebbe. So that was the first three of the, um, the, the, of the audio intro. Now we get to Rabbi Mordechai Elephant, someone who was an amazingly talented individual, a brilliant Torah scholar, very funny, phenomenal sense of humor, energetic, a visionary, a builder, a fundraiser, and perhaps the best adjective to describe him is very highly eccentric individual. And all these are descriptions of a Mordechai Elephant, and very, very unique figure in history, and made history himself in many ways, so we'll talk a little bit about him. In fact, recently, Rabbi uh, Penny Dunner published some rough transcripts of, of this talks that he had, some sort of memoir of, of his, um, and it's an interesting and somewhat bizarre collection of memories, stories, anecdotes, and assessments. Uh, some of them are actually true, many of them less so. Um, Rabbi Mordechai Elephant tended to embellish things from time to time, and he had some spotty recollections of events years later. Um, so I'll give you a few minor examples that I found. Again, it's full of them. Almost every page you have, um, you know, mistakes or, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what to call them. One of them he mentions being with Rav Aaron Koyen, the Rosh Hashiva of Hebron, during the Six-Day War, which is very interesting that they spend time together during the Six-Day War because there's a slight technical issue with that. The fact that Rav Aaron Koyen passed away six years before the Six-Day War in 1961. So, you know, I don't know how that get-together actually took place. Um, he also mentions how a whole story with Rebel Lapian and driving him from from Kfar Hasidim, from the north of the country, to Yerushalayim, to Hebron, to Davin at the Ma'aras HaMechpelah on the fifth day of the Six-Day War. So it, it sounds almost wild that it was during the war and they were driving into this, you know, the, the into Marisa Machpela, and it was, and and he points out that it was a Sunday, and that Sunday was the fifth day of the Six Day War. So that again is uh, incorrect. Uh, Sunday was the day after the Six Day War was already over. The last of the six days of the Six Day War was on Shabbos. The next day it was way over, overwhelming victory. The Israeli army uh, was way past the West Bank. They're on the road to Amman. And uh, therefore, it is still an amazing story, if it's true, but it's still it's definitely much more plausible that he went to the Marasa Machpelah at that point. Uh, he also cites a story of, of Reb Chaim Oizer coming to Rebel Yechayim Meizel, the rabbi of Lodz, for a haskama on his sefer. And so what's interesting about this story is that Reb Chaim Oizer published his sefer 10 years after the passing of Rebel Yechayim Meizel, so Meizel, Meizel, so it's unlikely that Reb Chaim Oizu would have asked him for a haskama. Um, there's also a, a story uh, with the Chavetz Chaim that never took place, or maybe about Rameir Simcha and, and the closing of Alajan, which is, you know, uh, completely fabricated from beginning to end. We, I discussed part of it in the Myths of the Chavetz Chaim episode, but there's more details there. Uh, there's also a, a very inaccurate version of how Rabbi David Lifshitz was saved from the war, 
It makes it, it makes it seem like he was already under Nazi occupation when he was saved. When he was not, he was under Soviet occupation. Either way, these are just a few small examples. There's tens more. I'm not sure how the editing worked on that uh, memoir. It seems to be a very rough draft. Uh, all memoirs in general should be read with caution, but this one with extreme caution, which makes the title of the memoir even more ironic. It's titled, An Elephant Never Forgets. So I guess... We can make a subtitle, except when he does. But either way, this is just about that. It's just to get it off my chest. Um, getting back to him as a personality, he was an amazing person. Uh, he was unquestionably a unique individual, one of the most energetic builders of Torah in recent times. That's uh, un- unquestioned. And he, he deserves an amazing amount of credit for what he was able to achieve in that regard. He came from a Hungarian Jewish family. He was born in New York. He went to, at a young age to Neri Yisrael in Baltimore. Later he was in Lakewood by Baron Cutler. And uh, later on he was in Besa Talmud, one of the early students of Besa Talmud. He was very, very close. His primary Rebbe was Rebbe Malin. He was devoted to him and spoke about him a lot. Um, that was his primary uh, Rebbe that he, that he studied under and, and followed. Um, he married uh, Goldie Herman. Goldie Herman was the daughter of Reb Nachum David Herman. Nachum David Herman was the only son of of the all for the boss Reb Yaakov Yosef Herman, who had mostly daughters. This was his son, Reb Nachum David, and this Reb Nachum David Herman, who was a rabbi for Williamsburg and then later in in uh, in uh, I think in, in uh, East New York, one of those Brooklyn neighbors, I forget which, and uh, he later moved to Israel. So he had two children, a son who also moved to Israel. He was an educator here, an important educator in the north in the Yerushalayim. And then this daughter, Goldie Herman, um, who married her Mordechai Elephant. And the un- elephants, unfortunately, never had children of their own. They passed away childless. Very tragic. Um, but um, but he uh, in the ni- mid-1950s, he, they moved, a couple moved to Israel. He uh, studied... Uh, by the Briskarov in Yerushalayim. It was probably by Rebleib's inspiration that he did so, in all likelihood. And he lived actually for before that for a short time in Bnei Brak, and he was very close with Reb Levenstein, the Mashkiach in Panovich at the time, and also Rav Shach. He developed a lifelong friendship, an interesting relationship that the two of them had with Rav Shach. The, the truth is, is that it seems that he, have, he was close with everyone. He was very... He very good with everyone. He, he had a relationship with almost an endless list of close uh, acquaintances that he had with the Torah leaders of his day. Um, so he goes on to found ITRI. ITRI is, stands for the acronym is Israel Torah Research Institute. Um, it was also named uh, something Avraham, or Tiferes Avraham, something Avraham, for his wife's other grandfather, an amazing person also, Avraham Horowitz, or Nachum David Herman's father-in-law, who was a real tzaddik, a unique individual for his time. Um, and later on, it was when, when Rabbi Elephant himself passed away in 2009, it was renamed in his own memory, Zahav Mordechai, which is also happened to be the name of his Sfarim. And uh, aside from everything, all of his other accomplishments, he was a tremendous Torah scholar, especially an expert in Kadshim, but he was a, 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 uh, uh, in all areas, a tremendous, uh, tremendous Torah scholar. So Itri was originally a koil in the Romeima neighborhood in Yerushalayim, and he later managed to finagle a piece of property in the Beit Safafa area uh, near Talpiot in Yerushalayim. The Beit Safafa was a Palestinian village that was 
captured in East Jerusalem, that was near East Jerusalem, that was captured by the Israeli army during the Six-Day War. And um, he, was, he was close with Moshe Dayan, he was close with everybody. And uh, Moshe Dayan and Teddy Kolek, the mayor of Yerushalayim at the time, Moshe Dayan was the Minister of Defense, obviously, in the time of the Six-Day War, and he was able to get this piece of property for them. It was formerly a British mandatory, uh, from the time of the British mandate, a hospital, and he, the, the campus was given, was, he was able to get it for his yeshiva. Before the yeshiva was ready, it was actually housed in another part of East Jerusalem, in a place called the Orient House, for several months. And it's ironic that with Itri, everything's got to be something unique and, and different than anything you could imagine. What's the Orient House? This is an ancient building deep in East Jerusalem. And it was formerly a hotel among its prestigious guests in the early part of the 20th century was Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany. And following Itri's short uh, stop there for a few months, it, uh, in the 19, later on, it became the, you know, about 10, 20 years later, became a local headquarters of the PLO in Yerushalayim. And it was a major political issue in the 1990s. So go figure. So Itri's it, uh, in between those, those, those events too. He has major connections, or Mordechai Elvin has major connections with all, you know, Israeli politicians, with Ben Gurion himself, with Moshe Dayan, I mentioned, Golda Meir, Teddy Kolak, the mayor of Yerushalayim, Mitzchik Rabin. Pinchas Sapir was the uh, legendary minister of uh, of uh, of finance in in uh, uh, early years of the state of Israel. Well, the story of the story of the Isra- state of Israel's economy in the 1950s cannot be told without P- the name Pinchas Sapir, um, who's called the economic czar, uh, ironically, of the country. Then that's a different story. He was close with American politicians, uh, Vice President Hubert Humphrey, later on Gerald Ford. Earlier on, Harry Truman, Ronald Reagan, and world leaders. Believe it or not, he had a relationship with Muammar Gaddafi. He met him at least once, and Pope John Paul II. So he was with everyone. He managed to get around to everyone and anywhere. In fact, Ben Gurion once asked him, "You have this yeshiva in Israel, and Itri stands for Israel Torah Research Institute. It's English. If you have a yeshiva in Israel, then it should have a Hebrew name." And he 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 said. He said to Ben Gurion, he says, because that's where the money is. The money's in English, not in Hebrew. Very blunt and straight to the point. Um, Golda Meir actually came once to visit the, the yeshiva, and she went, had to go into the Ezra She wasn't able to come into the base Medrash, but she she managed. She was there, and she came for a ceremony. She respected the place. Uh, it's interesting that he hosted. I don't know how many yeshivas hosted people like uh, Golda Meir. Now, he devoted considerable time in his early years in the early years of the yeshiva and energy to translating the Rambam's medical writings into English. And this was a project done in conjunction with the Weizmann Institute in Rehovot. And its sole purpose was to be eligible for all kinds of uh, funding from government grants and institutions and private donors. It was, a, it was a great gimmick that he came up with. He had phenomenal uh, fundraising endeavors. Um, he also had an, an eye for talent. That might have been his most lasting legacy within the Itri Yeshiva. Amazing eye for talent. He hired, um, he was never at the center stage within the Yeshiva. He was always busy fundraising, though he did give a shear. Um, and he brought in a, 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 a cadre of staff who were, you know, uh, the every every prospect. He hired him and had them give a shear in the Yeshiva. At one point, he even tried getting Rav Shach involved, and that didn't work out and others, 
But he had, uh, of course, Reb Shleima Fisher, who took over after his passing as the Rosh Hashiva and has since retired. Reb Shleima Fisher, Reb Nassim Kamenetsky was was uh, came in the late 1960s, and he was a Rebbe in the Itri Yeshiva. Um, he also did administrative work there. Reb Shmuel Oyerbach, um, Reb Shleima Zalman's son, who later on had his own Yeshiva. Reb Michal Zilber, who today is the Rosh Yeshiva in Zvil, but he started off there. Another Yerushalmi, great uh, Torah scholar, Reb Yassel Tzainvert, who I knew, he lived right near the Mir Yeshiva. Um, Rafael Wechselbaum, or Beryl Eichenstein, even Reb Simcha Zissel, uh, bride from Chevron, would stop by every once in a while. Reb Tzvika Shalevsky uh, was the Rosh Hashiva in the Chadera branch of Itri for a period of time. Reb, uh, Reb Mordechai Elephant was close friends with Reb Nachum Partsavich and, 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 uh, and knew his father-in-law, the Rosh Hashiva, the Mir Chaim Shmulevitz, and he would try to have them come and give a shear occasionally, every once in a while as well. Many other prominent visitors, he would come and have them deliver an occasional talk, like uh, you know, once, once a year, once every ten years, whatever, to have to expose his students to as many uh, type of people as possible. At its heyday, Itri had several hundred students, mostly American, but there were some Israeli. The shiurim were in Hebrew, which was a bit of a novelty because a lot of the Yerubayim there were Yerushalmi, and you would assume that in the 1960s, a lot of the Americans would have preferred Yiddish or would have simply known Yiddish better. And this was a yeshiva that had all the shiurim in Hebrew. In fact, uh, Reb Chaim Shmulevitz did not want to give a shir, a guest shir in the yeshiva. And the way he was able to push him off for a while was by saying that he, his Hebrew wasn't good enough. And that's why he wouldn't come. But eventually he came once or twice and gave also. Um, now, Itri, the main Itri Yeshiva was just one of many institutions that he opened. He kept on opening more and more and more. Like I said, he started off in Romema with a koilol, and later on in Beit Safafa was a yeshiva, a large yeshiva. There were several branches of elementary schools, um, other branches of the yeshiva, yeshiva high schools. He started chapels for, for uh, uh, American students coming to study in Israel. He started a seminary for girls. He had the branch of the Itri Yeshiva in Chadeira. He started... Sephardic uh, schools, several branches in Netanya and Beit Shemesh. He started schools for um, immigrants from the former Soviet Union. He started yeshivas for Balei Tshuva. He started schools for Americans coming to study in Israel. He inspired an alumnus of Itri, Reb Chaim Bravender, to open his institutions for Americans, uh, which you know is 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 still around still today. He even Reb Elephant even had a, a a group of ganim of kindergartens and and. And uh, um, youth centers in Yafo, Yafo, talking about a suburb of Tel Aviv, a um, lower on the socioeconomic scale, and he's going there to, of all places, and opening kindergartens and youth group centers for after-school activities. I mean, the scope of the institutions that he opened is simply mind-boggling. Perhaps the most interesting branch of Itri actually is not even in Israel. It's the Shar HaToyra Yeshiva in Queens is a branch of Itri Yeshiva. Reb Sholem Spitz, the Rish Yeshiva and founder of Shara Taira, together with Reb Kalman Epstein, is a student of Reb Mordechai Elephant, and he founded the Yeshiva at his behest in the 1970s. And it definitely was, I don't know if it still is, I'm not aware, but it definitely was it when it was founded, a, a, a branch, an official branch of Itri. And it was only named for the Grudni Yeshiva of Reb Shimon Shkaf. So, if we think about it, and, uh, you know, and, 
don't know if our Shara Torah listeners would be so excited to hear this, but in reality, the Shara Torah Yeshiva has more in common with a, a Gan in Yafo, the kindergarten in Yafo, than with Rav Shimon Shkaps Yeshiva in Grodna, ironically. And uh, Rabbi Mordechai Elfin was a master fundraiser from everyone, from governments, from foundations, from secular Jews, from non-Jews. There was a Polish Holocaust survivor from Bialystok that he had a long-term relationship with that he would go visit and and uh, he convinced him to uh, support his many endeavors. He and his wife, uh, his wife, Goldie Herman, uh, Herman Elephant, would go on fundraising trips herself. She would completely dedicated to the, uh, to the uh, institutions, her husband's institutions. And they would cultivate these personal relationships that eventually would pay off. Uh, they would fundraise for all the various institutions. They would fundraise for students' personal needs. And, incredibly, they would often assist other yeshivas and other institutions with funding. He would literally go ahead and help out many, many yeshivas and other uh, places of Torah around the world that had nothing to do with his yeshiva. And that's something that uh, also he doesn't get enough uh, credit for. Um, then he went ahead and built, decided to build a neighborhood. He built a housing development called Kiryat Itri, right next to the Matazdorf neighborhood in Yerushalayim, right near Romema, where he originally was. And um, today it's the beginning of Rehov Saratskin, uh, the area of, of 9-11, and across the street, uh, the 12, 14, 16 Saratskin. There was a, used to be a, a fa- the famous Saratskin post office used to be there. That was due to his influence also, that the his Kirya, his little neighborhood, should have a, its own post office and its own little shopping center. That was all from... Mordechai Elephant, and the Nine Saretskin, the main building of this development, had a lot of celebrity residents. Of course, Mordechai Elephant himself lived there, but also Rabbi Tzchakotner lived there in his later years. Rabbi Sien Abba Shaul, uh, the Rashiva of Parat Yosef, lived there. Rabbi Aaron Yafin from the Chevron Yeshiva, Mayor Kahana, lived there um, on, on Saretskin in Kiryat Itri during his years in Israel. And Yibad Lechaim, may live be well, Rabbi Tzchak still lives there. Um, also, Rabbi Nassim Kamenetsky was the, the you know, Rebbe in Itri. He, of course, uh, lived there as well. So it's, he encouraged American families to make Aliyah, interestingly enough. Um, Elephant, when he suspect, when someone suspected him of his Zionist leanings, so as a result of all his close affiliations with politicians and the chief rabbinate, so allegedly, again, I don't know, can verify if this is actually true, allegedly Rebbe Malin assured the critics that the only thing a Mordechai elephant cared about was either Tyra or fundraising. So it has nothing to do with ideology, any of these uh, relationships that he's cultivating. Uh, later, unfortunately, there, if starting in the 1980s, um, and especially the 1990s, there went into financial trouble his institutions, and later there was a whole embezzlement scandal, very tragic that they... It went spiraling down. A lot of the institutions either fell apart or became independent. The yeshiva itself got a bit smaller. Um, it was very tragic that in his later years he had to, you know, go through all those uh, uh, troubles with all this empire that he had built. There are some many prominent alumni of the Itri yeshiva. I just want to mention a couple of them. First of all, Rabbi David Abu Chatzera, after his family moved from Morocco to Israel in the 1960s, he studied at uh, Itri. Today the whole world is you know, taking helicopters and flying out to Naharia and going up to get brachas and waiting online and giving money. David Buchatzera is a product of Itri. It's just something to keep in mind. Uh, another one is one of the biggest uh, halachic paiskim in the world, Rabbi Tzak Mordechai Rubin, who wrote the Arches Shabbos and is the rabbi of a, a very large and prominent shul in Haranof. 
is a Itri alumnus. That's just two examples. There is many more. And following Reb Mordechai Elephant's passing in 2009, Sir Shlema Fisher, who's also a really unique individual, a genius. I've heard him speak uh, several occasions and I didn't understand anything. And uh, not that that's a proof that he's a genius, but he happens to be one. And uh, he also has an interesting personality. He's a Yerushalmi Jew. His brother is Rabbi Yisrael Yaakov Fisher, who is on the Eidah Haredis. And Rabbi Shlema Fisher somehow straddles uh, both worlds. He's He's good with everybody. Uh, and several others, along with Rabbi Fisher, took over as the Rashi Yeshiva later on. And today, the primary Yeshiva is another alumnus, Rabbi Ari of Oizer, also of Harnof. So that's a little bit about Rabbi Mordechai Elephant. Uh, this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, virtual tours, sponsorships, lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.